What are you doing? I'm setting the timer. So oh, I now that. we have a big clock. That I thought tells you were just us. playing with an app. Okay, three, two, one. one. Hello. Hello. Wait, Hi. Hang on. The joke is always that we never do that on time. Is it? Uh, usually. So we can't actually be professional. That ruins the whole. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the October cast. It's I'm been really sorry. Uh, six weeks since the last podcast because we do podcasts when we feel like it. Frankly, well, we kind of did two of the very close together which was our own fault we should have held one in the podcast we vault. got everybody too excited you're right we should have put it in the podcast vault of people at home if you want to know what our podcast vault looks like you know that big red machine from ghostbusters they put the ghosts in it's like we talk and we kind of trap that stuff i'm gonna open it now you'll hear the sound of opening oh no close it the all the all the ghost all the podcast ectoplasms gonna what are we talking about the podcast the october podcast we've got lots of things to talk about uh, i'm gonna run through definitely the we've been playing zombie 15 sheriff of nottingham a uh, new D fifth edition we've Pat. finally finally played dog eat dog and subdivision we're gonna chat about how we feel about the star wars rpg there's nothing at all linking any of this stuff, but you've, you've also written netrunner on that list oh yeah well no this is what i wanted to start talking about as okay a sort of light uh, way of getting it. Generally, my board game has been getting a bit stylish this month. Uh-oh. Uh What have people <laughs> noticed in the uh, Steam Park review that I have now on one of my shelves? I, I have two big bookshelves of board games in my building yes. room, and one of which, which people will see next to the TV in the Steam uh, the Steam Park video, is now organised by colour. Yes, so it's which all we talked about, and someone actually noticed and commented yeah, on all the yellow board games and all the black board games, all the white, all the red. And then the other bookshelf is full of all the difficult colours. Like Trains is a kind of gunmetal, and then Lords of Vegas is like this thick kind of uh, felt green. Uh, I, yeah, I suppose so. I it's think... it's more of a mix of colours. There's no there's nothing there that is definitely one colour. No, but I'm doing this to reclaim the point I made in my Samurai Spirit video that board games that you take into your home are basically just big adverts, like big ugly logos, and you know maybe we can give them a bit of class uh, by arranging them by colour. Yes, because in my head that's like all fashion ever amounts to is putting colours next to each other because I'm disorganised but also that's not okay, awful but okay. I, how, I is also, the, how is this stylish I also hosted my Netrunner tournament which was very stylish yeah that looked good well this was the thing I was um, it was actually I thought that I would post my pictures of I hosted a Netrunner tournament in a bar and we had cocktails and prizes and a big yeah. clock on the wall yeah. and the, the Netrunner community would go crazy Paul and then actually <laughs> what happened was the first comment on Reddit Netrunner was some people play Netrunner while drinking and it was like, well, yeah, how can you not play games mm. while drinking? And then that was bad for It's interesting. Reasons. I didn't see that. I didn't see the ready response. Well, first off, people kind of like seemed underwhelmed by my event. And second off, it made me feel like an alcoholic. And it was... Mm. Oh. Well, yeah, so I don't know. My... Oh, you're not an alcoholic, though. Okay. I've also... But got... you're not. I, I mean, okay. I demonstrate demonstrably know that <laughs> it's a wrong word to use there but yes uh i've also mm-hmm. if you turn around you can see my netrunner deck box on the table there that's oh that and i've put stickers on it now with a fox on it's got a fox on now and so, butterflies and so that's been my classy month and, and a bee well no those are those stickers that uh, sort of school teachers give out to say good effort and stuff. standard fruit Okay, now don't look at that one. That's just... Banana, pineapple, pear. I thought it would be a good idea to... Cavendish. Costa Rica. Belgium. I was given a fruit basket and I thought, you know what, let's put the sticker from the fruit basket on my deck box. And it just makes me look mad like I'm on day release. Pink lady. Uh, That's a kind of apple. So that's been my month in board games. A series of unsuccessful efforts to make the hobby less kind of basementy. I'd like to, well, I'd like to really kind of quickly talk about that. Obviously, you wrote about Netrunner in the Netrunner 
feature. But I thought that was a really interesting thing to do, and I thought that's uh, and a really good kind of proactive way to get gamers together in a place which is still not always something that happens that much in London mm. which is you know a city of 8 million people yeah I think it, I guess if I wanted people to take home anything it's that it's really easy to run a really good right. board game event yeah. and it looked like it was a lot of fun and it looked like it was about more than just the board games it was about the board games and also about people getting together and also about enjoying yourself in a, in a social space well and it's about community and I guess yeah. it's funny that you know websites like Board Game Geek you know and, uh, and even within groups of friends we talk so much about the board games and which games are best and which games don't age well and which games have been replaced by other games despite the fact that board games are only ever like 50% of this hobby with the other 15% being 50% being human interaction which mm. I think board gaming and table gaming communities in general spend less time thinking about maybe i think that's true um and that's i don't know that's partly why i'm, I'm happy to see something like this mentioned obviously london on board do events some of the board game shops we know do events. oh of course of course and they all do great work but i mean I think it's, it's not a, still not mentioned a huge amount is no, it as individuals i think maybe we can do uh, we can do more maybe i'll make an inspirational poster Except instead of... I'm, I'm for that. I think that's really good. Okay. I think it's really neat that you did that. Maybe people listening to this should make us inspirational posters. To, but it would be like, rather than kind of, you know, you know, give us your metal so we can make tanks, it's like, uh, contact your local pub and play some card games. But we're, we have a subversive community, and if we suggested that people do a thing, they'll do a thing, but in a way that's slightly weird or funny, and we'll, we'll get the blame. <laughs> <laughs> they'll find a way to, that we'll get the blame. Yes, probably. Should we talk about some games? Okay. Should we now undermine everything I was just expressing by just talking about games and whether they were good? What do you want to talk about? <clears throat> I first. want to talk about Excuse first me. as an exciting sort of uh, sort of sprinting start. I'm going to talk on. about a quick panics game called Zombie Fifteen. Zombie Fifteen. Fifteen minutes to zombie. Fifteen minutes until the zombies until you lose because zombies eat you. And this is a real time fifteen minute game. And of course, there's so much zombie fatigue out there. We're so yeah tired of zombies yes there is and I really liked the fact that uh, people pointed out the Dead of Winter's theme just so happens the way they've made it you can replace the zombie standees with zomb- with wolves and actually the game still makes sense because there's still the threat of being bitten which is big in Dead of Winter it actually fits the winter theme even better and suddenly you're a colony of people hiding from wolves rather than zombies and that's I think a lot more flavorful and exciting that's interesting uh, there's shitloads of wolves outside jeez what's that oh wolves oh my god isn't that exciting I think. or birds uh, birds Hitchcock's the birds I think if Dead of Winter was really <laughs> was just birds and just bird tokens everywhere it would be the greatest game ever oh my god made. someone has to do that but Zombie 15 Zombie 15 though is a game that manages is a French game which manages to yes. uh, just totally overcome my zombie uh, fatigue and I'm really excited to play it again It re- I thought it would be interesting it was really good and, I'm and really- we, we saw this at Gen Con uh, we did. We saw it. We didn't play it at Gen Con. Yeah. yeah. And I'm already thinking maybe for our Halloween special this year we can do a 15 minute <sighs> zombie 15 review, which is one take, which we've always wanted to do. A one take. Oh my review. god, that could be interesting. And we could have like you know loads of. I think that would be a really fun uh, project, and I think people. So yeah, that would be cool. But so, so <laughs> zombie 15 oh. shtick is that it's a co-op game mm. and it's a real time co-op game. It takes 15 minutes, so it's a bit like Escape the Curse of the Temple or Escape from Zombie City in that way. But um, it's not simultaneous play. It's turn based and it has relatively simple rules. Are you all. This is a game where you all play 15 year olds and like Descent it has a big scenario booklet so you work your way through the campaign and the campaign is actually quite good at introducing rules so the first mission is very easy but then you go oh, I, I get this and then it introduces more rules and you go oh, and then by mission three you're just panicking um, but essentially you move around a board which is mm-hmm. full of grids like a suburb 
Uh, if there's zombies in your space, you can't move out of it. Um, if there's a house there, you can move into it and search it for weapons, but that makes noise and attracts zombies. Um, if the CD ever makes a noise <laughs> while you're playing, then you pour more zombies onto your uh, onto your space. Um, but this is turn-based, uh, so the interesting thing about it is that you want to take your turn as fast as possible, but you also don't want to do things like run into the wrong space and, and sort of become overwhelmed by zombies because then you of fall course. over. And like a video game, if you fall over and you're overwhelmed, people need to come and help you out. Yes. So it's a turn-based game where you want to take your turns as quickly as possible. Like, quickly, Paul, finish your turn! I need to take my turn! And then just before you finish your turn, the soundtrack makes a noise and zombies appear everywhere. Um, so it's interesting, and nothing stops you from passing. Nothing stops you from just not doing anything on your turn. If you're overwhelmed, if you have the the right items to hold off the zombies, for example, if you have a shear and a, 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 a machete and a shield, which is the shield is a bin lid, um, then you probably hold off the zombies, but mm-hmm. probably you can't kill them, for example, for whatever reason. Let's say your machete's on. And is that a good idea to sometimes pass your turn? It is, and that's interesting. That's the interesting thing about it, that you're playing a real-time game, you're passing, and you know that when you pass your turn, you're going to have to wait for these three people to finish their turn, and maybe they'll get into other scripts. But it's really neat. And um, I think this, the last scenario we played was this great thing where the board was, because it's all modular tiles. Yeah. It was set up like a big snake, like a big S, and you had to run all the way through the suburbs down one really, really long road. And um, the funny thing about that, it, and so you have 15 minutes to get from the start line to the finish line, essentially, but if someone was lagging behind the pack, if all the players run ahead, if one player runs ahead or if rather one player is behind yes. and the soundtrack makes a noise, then suddenly that player is separated. So you kind of need to stick together. Yeah, and I can see very quickly how you could get overwhelmed and everyone has to run back for you and it's a yeah, terrible exactly, waste of time. It's a waste of time. And there's also mechanics that sort of coax you into going into houses because... The, ad, the central game mechanic um, is to do with the fact that there's no dice. Um, if you want to kill zombies, you look at your weapon, like let's say you've got a shotgun, that's going to kill three zombies. Um, uh, and then you remove the ammo counter down one. So you're constantly killing zombies, but your weapons are constantly degrading, and so you constantly need to run into houses and look through the deck to get new weapons, which also spawns new zombies. But uh, there's a really fun mechanic, which was mentioned in our Gen Con video uh, by the designer, um, every time someone makes noise, for example, with a shotgun or a chainsaw, um, a chainsaw, is that a word? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, my, my brain no, of just course it is. Uh, melted a little bit. Um, so when you make noise, you put zombies into this zombie box, which is called the horde box, and it has horde written on the side, and it's a lovely little component. And so the horde gets bigger and bigger and more and more zombies in it, and then one of the cards in the zombie deck that you draw from when the soundtrack makes a noise is just horde. So there's a, there was a great moment where, as we were running through this big ass of suburbs and trying to get to the end, we looked at the zombie horde box and there were like 16 zombies in it, which is just an apocalypse wow. of zombies. And so every time the soundtrack made a noise, you draw a card hoping it's not a horde, because if it is, then suddenly you're, that, all, that, all of that all happens. of it gets dumped on you, all of it. So it's a really fun thing that you can just see building up, like off to one side of the board, praying, absolutely Is it praying. stressful then? Is it something that... It is! Is it something that any group of friends could play together, or do you need a group of friends who would get along well or not be too too mad at each other. I think it's a touch more of the space alert than Escape the Curse of the Temple. You do need to work together. Um, and there's a lot of focus on you as well. I mean, uh, a lot of these... Okay. Uh, well, you need to play it again before we review it properly. But I think um, uh, one mechanic that does happen is that when you're taking your turn, something I quite like, but that does definitely put a spotlight on you, is that the player to your left is adding any zombies. So if you draw a search card from a house where you're looking for a weapon, it says add two zombies. And you go, oh no, you don't do that. The player to your left does that. So the player to your left is just on zombies you see. And the player to your right has one job, which is make sure you don't cheat. 
Um, because okay. while you're running around and moving things, you might make a mistake. But it means that in addition to offering you advice, these people are kind of coaching you. Like instead of, uh, they're telling you what to do and giving you hints as to what to do, but they're also placing zombies on the board. And yeah. it's very much like, Paul, it's your turn, go. And the whole table is looking right at you and you have to make these decisions as fast as possible. And then, and also there's this funny pass the parcel element because even though... Um, it's a co-op game you, you don't want it to be your turn when the soundtrack makes a noise uh, and you add zombies to your space just because because uh, you're human and zombies are scary yeah uh, so I, I think Americans don't have passed the parcel but this is a English game which is probably might sound comedically cheap when, uh, when I describe it but at, at a lot of birthday parties when you're a kid in the UK it, this game is you get a toy or a present and you wrap it up in about 18 or 19 different layers of wrapping paper and then you pass the parcel around in a circle as music plays. And when the music stops, one person gets to take a layer off the parcel and whoever's holding it when you take the last layer off wins. So this enormous box gradually gets whittled down to something about the size of an apple and then it's an apple. It's an apple. Happy Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's, I think there's equivalents to that around the world. I don't know what they're called. Uh, what might they be called in America? They'd be called Hand Me the... I don't know, that's not going anywhere. That wasn't going anywhere aside from uh, xenophobia. Yeah. Xenophobia town. Aww. Uh, but yeah. So in terms of xenophobia and zombies, and are we, are we done with xenophobia and zombies? Um, this is, it's more like Zombie 15 gets a pass than it has made me excited about zombies again. I well, we'll, we'll, we'll have another look at it, and we'll spend some more time with it, I guess, and see what we think mm. after a few more games. Uh, it's definitely it's, it's unlike anything I've played before, so that's great. That's interesting. Uh, I've got more games to talk about, but let's pass over to you, because you went on holiday, well not holiday, <laughs> you went on a work trip, sorry, didn't mean to belittle your, uh, your career, My job. your job, <laughs> but you went to Firaxiscon. I went to Firaxiscon with uh, a camera, and I, I interviewed a bunch of people on camera from Firaxis. Who are Firaxis? Well... Well, what are cameras? I mean, there's a bunch of questions here. I went to Maryland, which is in America, which is a, a state in America, uh, and they have a lot of trees. And um, Firaxis are there, and Firaxis used to be micro, Microprose, and Microprose used to make mainly simulation, but occasionally strategy games. Most famous for the Civilization series. Yeah, and now Firaxis, uh, the company who do that with many of the same people, but not really simulations anymore, just heavy... Or not too heavy, accessible, but complex strategy games, all of which seem to basically have a grounding in board games. Mm, these are video games we're talking about, right? These are video games, um, but then, and some of them are really big. So, yeah, they're working on Civilization Beyond Earth? They're working on that. They've made a whole series of previous Civ games. They made a game about pirates, which was less board gamey. but immediately, you know, if you look at the latest version of Civ, it's covered in hexes, and it already looks a little bit board game-ish. Mm. Um, and then you start talking to the designers who work there. Is XCOM for access? Yeah. Oh, okay. So if anyone oh, yes. the new XCOM. Oh, yes. Which is, of course, which was prototyped as a board game. Yeah, I think designers. some of the prototyping was done as on paper with like board game rules. Yeah, and it's, I guess, this is all evidence. And the reason it's interesting to me is this is an example of how board, general game design is becoming a more holistic thing, which is great. Like, so first off, you had XCOM, the video game, and then we have the new XCOM video game reboot, which is amazing if you haven't played it. It's a great, great strategy game. Um, but that was paper prototypes as a board game. And now, Fantasy Flight 
right? Are doing yes. an actual board game of XCOM, which has nothing to do, like the mechanics are nothing to do with the video no, game. Not really. I mean, the theme's the same and the plot's very similar, but it's it's a wholly different thing to play and it's very much a four-person cooperative. Again, real-timey, kind of space-alerty, slightly panicky, balance the book, shoot the aliens. One. <laughs> Those are my two favourite things. Balance the book, shoot the aliens, and don't lose. Uh, and everybody panics and the time on the timer counts down and you lose. So, and it's good. So what was what was it like being in a convention which couldn't decide if it was a video game thing or a board game thing? Well, you know what? It was interesting. First of all, I thought it's going to be a video games thing. They're a video games developer. Um, clearly that's, you know, the focus of what they are, but it'll be interesting to be there because they have a board game history and a bunch of people who work there are also board game designers. And then I turned up and I think, uh, I mean, it was a very small convention. It was only about 200 guests. It was uh, very carefully managed because it's the first time they're doing this. But if I look at the amount of people playing games in the, in the games room, how many people were playing board games, how many people were playing video games, I think it was more board gamers. Well, that makes sense to me because, you know, you're not going to come to a convention and then play a video game. But, well, actually, no, because they, well, some they, people could, do, they could have, I guess, like, so LAN... Kind of civilization game. Well, they could. They didn't really go that way. They had some sort of people playing the new Civilization Beyond Earth by themselves for a little while, and then they had people playing the XCOM board game pretty much all the time <laughs> until way on into the night. They had people playing the Civilization board game. They had people playing King of Tokyo. They had a Seven Wonders tournament. Didn't you say you saw uh, Jake Solomon, designer of XCOM, playing King of Tokyo? I, he was either playing King of Tokyo or he was just staring at it really confused. <laughs> uh, I had a really good conversation with him and uh, filmed filmed a bunch of chats with a few Fraxis people. I had a good conversation with Jake Solomon where he was just talking about how he buys board games for design ideas. Mm. Just Which is exactly what I've been saying. Right, buy exactly. Buy the game, steal the ideas. Yeah. It's like there's... carving a turkey. Just buy the board game and then carve out all the ideas and throw away the cardboard stuff. That's what, that's... I, that's what I would do if I was Thanksgiving. It's Canadian Thanksgiving soon after we record this. And so then, are they different? Thanks. Th- yeah. It's very different up there. I wouldn't go there. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, but the weird thing there is people are cross-fertilizing ideas, yet video games grew out of board games anyway, and they grew out of role-playing games, and so many of those mechanics yeah, I don't think in the 70s and 80s were inspired by those anyway. So no, let's it's, it's not a new idea. It's just board games returning to video games after this really long hiatus it's like it how, does feel like that it does feel like people forgot about board games yeah it's like how D grew out of um wargaming and, yeah uh you know and, and actually wargaming didn't grow out of anything wargaming was just its own weird thing the a depressing amount of modern gaming everything the family tree traces back to like kenish kenishpiel no not kenishpiel that's the that's the oh, critics kriegspiel. Kriegspiel. yes <laughs> wow uh that was yeah, kenishpiel is yeah. of course the uh, critics prize at the spiel the iris board game convention not to be confused with kriegspiel which is war game war in game german, in german everything sounds better in german uh, it does Those sounds like you're serious yeah but yeah it was it was fascinating and you could i didn't realize exactly how many people there were actually board game designers and uh, I mean, I spoke to a chap called Pete Murray who made a miniatures war, uh, miniatures combat game. I spoke to Ananda Gupta, who's one of the two designers of Twilight Struggle, and we had a chat, and he said, wow. by the way, I've, I've not made that many board games, so I'm going to make another one. It's called Imperial Struggle. Wow. Which is, wait, wait, wait. This is, yeah. Hang on. How did you not tell me this? This is like a I'm just I'm releasing exclusive. it now. What's, well, it's he mentioned it briefly online somewhere, but people didn't seem to... Care. Care? 
I thought that was really odd. Tell, tell me about Imperial Struggle. It's based around, um, I think, the 17th, around the 17th, 18th century when uh, America's just become independent, but Britain and France are still big global powers. Like Napoleonic era. Yes, and there's an amount of... There's a period where some of these people are at war and then they're not at war and they're kind of at war, but they don't declare war. <laughs> there's a lot of passive-aggressive nonsense happening. And he was, he says it's it's in progress right now. It'll play a kind of a similar way. And the challenge for him this time was to take a big chunk of history where some of it's war and some of it's peace and try and see how that works. A similar way to Twilight, Twilight Struggle. Yeah, but a much bigger chunk of history this time rather than like the Cold War, which might be about 50 years. It's more, I think, in terms of 100 or more. Oh, but using some of the sort of like similar edging towards peace, edging towards war. Yeah, ballet, I think so, yeah. Twilight Struggle, of course, if you're not aware, a lot of people call it one of the greatest board games ever made it's um it's quite a heavy war game that's based around the cold war one side plays america and another mm. side plays russia and it the big mechanic in it as in a, a good few gmt games are card driven war games yeah so every player gets a deck of cards or you get a deck of cards you draw events from and the events the cards are all real life events from history so to pull an obvious one like the cuban missile crisis for example and maybe that goes to one. If, if that goes to, say, the Russian player, they can play it and uh, escalate, you know, nuclear war if that's what they want. Um, but if it goes to the other player, you end up holding your opponent's cards, basically, and trying to use them in the times yes. when it benefits them the least. It's very odd. And personally, I don't like... There's something about it that bugs me, actually, on top oh, really? of it. That also bugs me about civilization, where... Um, to me, there's a level of abstraction that I like in historical kind of war games yeah. that, uh, that enable me to imagine exactly what's going on in the story. Like, for example, in A Few Acres of Nuts... A Few Acres of Nuts. <laughs> I a thought few- you were going to say A Few Acres of Nuts. <laughs> Few acres of balls. A few acres of no. Uh, in a few acres of snow, Martin Wallace, great uh, war game. You know, I'm. I'm wait, who am I? <laughs> I'm France, and you're England, and we're sort of retelling what happened in this war for Canadian yeah. independence. That's I got that wrong as well. War for Canada. War for mess. Canadian war for a few war. acres. I don't of know, snow. man. But like, uh, but what bugs me about when I'm playing Civilization is like, oh, I'm the Chinese, and I've built the pyramids. It doesn't feel like I'm retelling history. It feels like someone went to history with a pair of scissors and cut it up and I'm just putting the pieces back together. Yeah, it which feel... t- I think for some people is the appeal. Well, yeah, okay. I, all right, I guess I'm just not one of those people then. But it's yeah, like, fair e- enough. even when we're playing 1960 Making of the President, which is another card-driven yeah. game, it's like, why am I simulating... Am I simulating the, the Kennedy-Nixon presidential race, but everything is just slightly in the wrong order? That's not an interesting sort of oh. thing for me. It it just bugs me. Like, oh, that's fair enough. It's, clo- it's almost uncanny valley history. Like, what is the benefit of me replaying these historical events, knowing every single historical kind of event that's coming, and because it'll all happen... But just in a slightly different order. It, I think that's that's I guess a fair enough thing to find weird about it. I mean, it also means that you get this that weird disconnect. It's like who are you playing? Because basically you're playing like demigods who well, decide yeah. when you know the Berlin Wall comes down because it has to come down at some point. Maybe it'll come down. It, I don't know. Maybe, that, maybe. That's always been a thing. Is I mean, it makes no sense who or what you are in in civilization. Yes, in you're either some the kind board of game or the video game. Guiding light, yeah. Um, although, to some degree, that's never bothered me that much in a lot of video games because they tend to abstract things in weird ways, no matter who you are. Yeah, I mean, when when um, uh, Matt Thrower, who of course is our war games writer on Shadow Sit Down, 
uh, talked about exactly this. Uh, he had a really interesting counterpoint in his, I think, Twilight Struggle review, mm. which is that any war game is insane. Like, if you play, I don't know, some game where you're commanding armies, that's not a role that exists either. There is yeah. no general in the history yeah. of war who's gone, I will send these men forward, these men will retreat. It's like, no, it's all... Uh, it's a hierarchy where it's you. It's a just... hierarchy of people going. What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> Are they? D- they're dead. They're dead. Run away. No, don't run away. What? It's like the yeah the the story I keep telling of the when we were invited to that mega game which was just world like trench warfare in World War One and we said where's the politics where's the discussion in that and they looked at me like I was five and they said oh there's politics in anything yeah <laughs> I, I realized, bet there can oh, be of course yeah what if the my commanding officer I don't like and want to have him replaced like all of this tiny stuff uh, so frightening. <laughs> so, I enjoyed that tangent. I got excited. No, that's a good. It's a. I think it's a valid tangent. Uh, it was an interesting con. I was surprised at the amount of board game stuff there. Sid Meier, who's uh, creative director at Fraxis and the, the man behind so many of these strategy and simulation games, going back like 30, 40 years almost. Um, Thirty years, definitely. Was as he always does. He was just talking about board games and how often he he prototypes stuff sometimes by hand first. And he used to play a lot of board games when he was young, and that's what has influenced his game design. And I think that's still, I think that's something that people should remember to do if they're thinking about making video games. Is still just play other games. Absolutely, get you know, ideas from everything. somewhere else. I really like my, all my friends. That I have a good few friends at New York University's game design course, which is yeah. the only game design doctorate in the world. I want to say, or and there's a huge board game crossover there. Might be the only game masters, but. Um, yeah. But they, uh, I, when I went to practice, uh, which is their game design convention last year, the first talk was by a B-girl. I think I mentioned this in the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast before, but it was it was a couple of B-girls in the breakdance battle scene. It's like, what can we learn about game design from that? And it had, and it just blew my mind. Um, wow. Stuff like challenging the judges if you don't like their, what they say, or doing exact, the exact same moves as your opponent, but exaggerating them to make them look ridiculous, like, which is awesome. Um, but, you know, those people also look at sports, you know, they look at board yeah. games, they look at card games, they look, yeah. they look at video games. They're like, because that just enhances and broadens game design in general, it, it allows you to pull in more ideas, it makes the entire hobby better. Um, but I actually interviewed Sid Meier um, when I was, God, uh, 17 or something on a press trip, and um, he... a lot He's of really people, nice, isn't he? He's very, he's very nice. Although he's sweet. He, it was my first exam, uh, time that I'd interviewed someone who was, like, relatively famous, and oh, wow. it's the weird thing of, like, when I interviewed him, you know you can tell how famous the person you're interviewing is by how many people just sit around them during yeah, the interview? Yeah. I think he had a PA, <laughs> a PR... And some other person, like another PR from another region, and they all just sat around him pretending not to listen or not listening, I don't know. Um, but it was fine. But a lot of people will ask me with, with regards to board game design, like, oh, I know it's a common question in board mm. game design. Uh, do you start with a theme or do you start with mechanics? And some people say theme and some people say both and whatever. But Sid Meier had the coolest answer for how he starts designs when I asked, because I realized mid-interview, that all of Sid Meier's games have an exclam on the end, or like might as well like trains, which did actually have an exclamation, or pirates, yeah. or civilization. Yeah. And uh, and I sort of probed him a bit about that. And then he said something along the lines of, well, all you need to do with game design is take a subject, and that's your game. And then you say then you ask yourself, what's fun about this? And you go, brilliant, yeah, that, that's great. That's a great answer for how to And that kind of works. Like if you have, you know, uh, 
baking. Like immediate, that, I'm just pulling that off the top of my head, but if I was to design a baking board game now as an amateur designer, that's such a useful crutch because I think I watch baking TV programs and what's tense. Well, when you put it in the oven, you have no idea if it's going to come out or rise or work. That's the fundamental frustration with baking. So I'd want a game that, uses, that draws that tension out. I look at uh, baking competitions and the frustrating thing is a, gr- a sort of slow rising tension as you watch your opponents and what they're doing yeah. and, sl- and having no idea quite how ambitious they're being. Yeah. So kind of like getting a glance occasionally and saying, shit, he, that looks tall. What, what's he building? What's he baking? I think that, and that is immediately a start, you know, which is more than I would have if I just uh, thought, I want to design a board game now. What shall it be about? And I know I would spend four hours walking in circles and still have no idea. But yeah. you just take a theme and go, what's fun about this? What's fun about pirates? Well, obviously, sword fighting and swashbuckling and having a ship and getting bigger ships and stealing. Like that, you know, that's your start. Yeah, and that's, absolutely. That's what's in Sid Meier's Pirates and it's what's in Merchants and Marauders, the board game as well, the best pirate board game that we know. There should be more pirate board games. Well, actually, we've got... Um, Black Fleet, just in the corner over there. Um, a game from the second game from Space Cowboys, who designed Splendor, so that could be very cool. Splendour. Splendor. But yeah, uh, I've got a few. In, what I think are interesting interviews on camera that I will try and cut together the best bits of, and at some point we can have those up as well, possibly with some other things. We'll see. Mm. Um, it's just a good time. Have we? What are you going? Can we announce on camera that you're going to Board Game Geek Con and we'll be there? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, we're on podcast, not on camera. Yeah, no, and I hope to film maybe a couple of things at BGG and see if I can find some exciting uh, designers to interview there about their work and what they do as well. Amazing. So if you see Fingers Paul crossed. wandering around Board Game Geek Con, it's not a ghost, it's not a hallucination, it's the real deal, and you should run up and the, the, all, Yeah, do. I mean, all the standard rules apply, which is, like, no touching, no eye contact. Yep. Um, jokes um, have to be run by me beforehand. I'll have someone there with me you can run jokes through. Okay, oh, that's much better. Um, um, all yeah. conversations limited to one minute. Yeah. Um, uh, that's y- everything, though. I, th- no. I think we're quite accessible. There's also the photo thing. Um, if you would like a photo with Paul playing a board game, that's the only circumstance in which you will be sitting down to play board games, I think, for photo opportunities. Yeah. The- there is also that problem where all photos of me, uh, the, everyone else who's in them dies. Yeah. Well, I don't know why that is. It's not. We're still working out the kinks in that, so I think we'll just edit, I think that's, we'll just edit that bit out of the podcast. That's like a Windows problem. It'll probably be better when you... On, I don't think that happens on Apple. Uh, okay. Uh, what's next? What's next? I'm looking at this hastily scribbled thing. Uh, oh, oh, oh. I played some more Sheriff of Nottingham. Oh. That review is coming soon. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham uh, is out this month. Um, the re- our review will be coming soon. Can we can we announce that it'll be Matt? It'll be Matt. It'll be an Doing another fun opener. He'll be dressed <laughs> in uh, fantasy clothes, I think, that he bought for a wedding or something. Asking us if asking us if we are feeling that we are going to have some luck. Are you you feeling lucky? To do- oh, I actually got the quote. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you haven't watched his Cash and Guns review, do, because it has about halfway through the best uh, action movie montage. And pandemic. Uh, yes. And just all of them. Um, God, he's good. So, uh, yeah, he'll be doing an open on show for Nottingham, but it's out this month, so we'll just squeak in here. It's amazing. Buy it, for the love of God. Um, it's one of the... F- it's got a couple of problems, um, but it doesn't stop it from being some of the most fun we've had. Sheriff Nottingham, if you haven't heard of it, is... So much bluffing and lying. You still haven't played it yet, have you? Oh. Uh, so, it is Customs the Game. Um, every, every player has a hand of cards which contain things like chickens and bread and cheese. And you're trying to get stuff through the gates of the castle to your market stall. However, 
in your hand of cards might be contraband like pepper or crossbows <laughs> um, and so you put a number of things you have an actual velvet pouch which holds cards and you put some cards in there and you seal it shut with a click and then one player is the sheriff and the sheriff uh, receives cards and the sheriff must look each player in the eye and say Paul what's in your bag and uh, Paul says what are you saying three cheeses three cheeses great really it's not three cheeses though is it you're full of shit and then I might turn to the other players and go who will pay me to open Paul's bag and uh, none of the other players say anything and I go I'm going to open it fuck it and then Paul goes no 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 no. I'll give you two gold not to open it and then but all these just like real casting <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's actually how I got uh, all those drugs into um, uh, we'll edit this bit out We're, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, no it's great and the, the, the greatest thing in it is because there's a little pop button on the bag all discussions end the moment that button is popped open. Like, it, it's just over. At that point, the sheriff is looking through the bag. And if there's contraband in it, that player pays a huge fine to the sheriff. But if the player was in telling 100% of the truth, like if there's two bread and a chicken in that example, then and you said three bread, you, you would still pay me a fine. But if you were totally legit, the sheriff pays you a huge fine. So there's this horrible thing. Like, it's an amazing thing. I'm just trying to get people in trouble. Yeah, it's my signature move is people ask me what's in the bag and I'm confused and I try and panic and, I do, and then they open it and of course I'm telling the truth. Like it's the great thing about it. It's like the Tanner in Werewolf, which is the character in Werewolf who wants, who wants to, to be die. Who wants to yeah. be the werewolf and die. Um, that's amazing because... Uh, it allow resistance says lie lie as well as you can that's the win condition sheriff of nottingham and the tanner and werewolf says you can lie or you can be really you can also win by pretending to lie yeah and that, you can win by telling the truth basically if you can get players to think you're lying which is the flip side of the coin like any player who can't lie but because they look like shifty which i'm sure every group of friends in the world has they can win because they look shifty it's, it's kind of amazing and i having even though i haven't played it i immediately get how it works and i immediately get the concept and i can immediately see how it works as an opener game it works as probably a more casual game to play with friends who are less board gamey and it just seems so it's ripe for stuff to go horribly hilariously wrong for everybody all the time <laughs> yeah it's great because being sheriff feels like an honour because you can probe everyone go through their bags last time I played in the first time I was the sheriff I just lost I lost my ass. like every single bag I opened was telling the truth it was amazing I remember we played with um, Tiffany Ralph uh, yes. the one tower on, yes. on YouTube and uh, I heard about this she dropped into our game halfway through because she was watching and sort of learned that she dropped in and uh, she was the sheriff <laughs> and uh, she Matt was first and uh, she she just joined us so we didn't really know how she was going to play she goes what's in the bag and Matt's like oh it's five she and then she just pops it up <laughs> like immediately like and we just hadn't played in that star before and Matt was like Matt's jaw drops open and he's like he didn't chance to lie <laughs> and sure enough she opens it and she's fucking full of contraband and he pays her this huge fine it was so good so fantastic good. so yeah no playing it again uh, it's just got me more excited to do the review and this is you can consider this a shut up and sit down recommends because we don't know how many copies are in stock floating around the world so if you want to buy it it's probably going to be quite in demand 
I think so. Yeah. I think um, Arcane Wonders uh, did a great job of picking that one up. Um, Arcane Wonders now two for two because Mage Wars is a great game that yes. they're supporting, and now they've they wanted they were telling us to be known for something other than Mage Wars, and sure enough, now they are. Now yeah, I think that's going to do very well for them. And congratulations um, as well to the Dice Tower. The Dice Tower collaborating with them on this. I oh really? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, no, tell sh- me about this. Sher- I don't know. Sheriff, it's an interesting publishing deal. Uh, I think a lot of people within board game uh, sort of reviews and criticism uh, tend to. And not in a bad way necessarily, but be quite cozy with designers and publishers just because it's a really small industry. Yeah. And Dice Tower, I'm guessing this is how it works. Um, but they they've signed this Dice Tower Essentials line with Arcane Wonder, the publisher. And I think how it works is Tom has been reviewing games for so long that he knows when a great game is out of print <laughs> and that he's able to talk to Arcane Wonders and say, Yeah, publish this game. And they go, Okay, and then he's able to help yeah. with the media push. Um, I the Shut Up and Sit Down is so for just great games being played that I'm not sure I consider anything unethical about a critic going this game's really good because it's not like any of us are doing this for the money you know no one no one in board gaming is getting rich although in 10 years time there'll be a massive industry and we'll be in an ivory tower and oh that'd be great and then we'll be so corrupt we'll just get tons of money just, just waiting just waiting for that to happen uh, what's next on the list uh, do you have the sad thing that board games are so limited though being a physical object as opposed to because we've both been so used to video games and the fact that you just now download a video game and you go hey I've got a video game and you don't ever think it might run out yeah well you know I there's a side to that hobby I quite like this month um, I was had cause to remember Ghost Stories Black Secret oh, Ghost yeah. Stories is a great co-op game about battling ghosts we've talked about a lot on the show and you should google it and google our review if you haven't seen it but it's one of your personal favourites as well it's I don't know if it I don't know if it makes my top 20 anymore oh, but I okay. do really like it um but that game had an expansion called Black Secret, which was... The White Moon was an expansion that, in the traditional style of co-op games, just made it harder, more elements. Um, Black Secret took a co-op game and did something a bit like the pandemic bioterrorists. Now one of you can play the ghosts and run around digging graves and tweaking the puzzle mm. and everything. It didn't sell well, and now I've received the box, I found out why, but it, they, they stopped selling it. And what I quite liked in board gaming, and obviously I'm speaking from a privileged position, but I quite like that I was able to talk to the Shut Up and Sit Down community and say can anyone send me this because I can't buy it for love nor money anymore and someone did a very very kind reader from Canada um, who is the star of this podcast this podcast goes out to you sir and your name I haven't forgotten and I will put in the description of the podcast um, but uh, but yeah it's it, I kind of like the side of board gamings which are like about rarity you know it's like people who f- hunt and find rare vinyl records you know I suppose so it's it's maybe that's why that I don't know I'm being really conjectural but maybe that's why there's also an element of community and why there's an element of the industry feeling smaller and well because we're all friendlier. trading and sharing and but I don't know it's it's an industry that's based around games that are based around getting people together and nothing is as big money as the other industries in the world of film and media and video games mm-hmm. and Everything's so much more personal. Yeah. I don't know. I think it will be nice, maybe, you know, in 20 years when 3D printing is in every home, to be able to just craft board games. I wonder what that'll do for board games. It will probably make them enormous. (laughs) Like, do you know how easy it would be if, like, how easy it would be to recommend Space Cadets Dice Duel if anyone could download it and print it in their home? Wow. What a concept. Wow, that's... Well, yeah, who knows? I'm going to download and print my 3D ivory tower that I would live in. (laughs) The first layer by layer by layer. Did we tell the story of the podcast of the... 
you know Daniel Nye Griffiths, a writer we know who... Um, I don't think we did. I, I don't... Yeah, I guess we didn't. He worked in a um, shared office, and uh, this is the king of tangents right now. <laughs> um, but he worked in a shared office space uh, in London, which happened to have a 3D printer. And the thing he was he told us is, he, what you don't realise about 3D printers is that while they seem like this super advanced, sexy future technology, they are the loudest things in the world, and everyone in the office would hate it when someone was using the 3D printer because it's wow. like, grr, 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 for minutes and minutes and minutes. Um, and then one day they hear this, grr, grr, and what happened was the 3D printer hadn't been properly tethered to the table. Like, it had essentially... Oh, no. It had worked its way free from its bindings. <laughs> it's, got, it's gone rogue. And crawled towards the edge of the table and flung itself off. And, of course, being like a high-tech prototype, it just burst, like, exploded into a thousand oh, pieces. No. Oh, that's a tragedy. Yeah, it's funny, but it's it's actual suicide. It of, became like, self-aware. And then immediately just wanted to die. That's so sad. Yeah, um, so that's my 3D printer story. It was Daniel Nygriffin's 3D printer story. He's a, so it's, it didn't escape. It's not like it's still out there. Well, may, unless, it, unless it 3D printed a load of 3D printer remains, threw them off the table... And then escaped. I so everyone oh. went to the mess and went, oh, the 3D printer's killed itself. So that Stephen Hawking interview where, where they interviewed him and said, how do we know it's really you and that your computer hasn't just taken over and is pretending to speak for you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Did he have a good response to that? He said, it's fine. Wow. He said, don't worry, it's fine. Don't worry. Um, okay. Oh, one other board game I've played before we move on to uh, the hot topic. The thing we've hot. really, we've both actually been enjoying, which is D and D Fifth Edition. But uh, I played Subdivision. Now, you don't know. What I this don't know is. about this. I'm gonna. I think I just put it in my attic where the spiders live. But um, that's not a good sign, then. No, it's not. Subdivision really weirded me out. So we, we, you and I are both big fans of Suburbia, huge fans. Fantastic yes. Tadalspec game. Very um, good game to do with designing some suburbs. Uh, really crunchy puzzle as you build a suburb. It looks kind of cool. As the more the more that I play around with it and just look at it, I think it looks just. It has I like a, how it looks. It has a very weird art style. It looks like an architect's three D render of a building. If I was being generous, like I could easily imagine an architect building those really rough looking. Yeah. Fast food restaurants. Um, but then Subdivision came out. Not Suburbia, Subdivision. And it confused the piss out of me because the box art is really similar. They've repurposed all the art assets from Suburbia, almost all of them. And it's a still a hexagon tile laying game. Yeah. Same publisher, different okay. designer. And it's kind of, it's a two to four player game like Suburbia. So just, it takes about the same time as Suburbia. But the game itself is different. You roll a bunch of dice now, rather than just buying tiles off an auction and then slotting them into your thing and triggering combos. This time you roll a dice and that lets you place tiles and the tiles still trigger combos, but it now has a weird mechanic where you're placing tiles on a board rather than just building it just across the table. Okay. And there's a motorway that goes around the board and you want to make sure all of your hexes have access to the motorway. So it's kind of like suburbia with walls around it and so there are pre-existing restrictions. But yeah. But there's only like six tile types. And so you're, you're still building towns? Yep, you're still building suburbs. Um, and it has some odd mechanics like... It's, it's trying to be at once simpler and more complex than Suburbia because Suburbia works in numbers. This works in a bunch of simpler, different mechanics like whenever you trigger an industrial area, you can place sidewalks around your city and sidewalks 
you get a benefit for longest sidewalk in a kind of Catan style. Anyway, the point is, I got to the bottom of this. It's not. It's not very good. Um, it's not longest great. sidewalk. People absolutely do not need to buy Subdivision. It's fine. It's a decent enough design, but it's so weird. Like, it just the the publishers would put out something so similar to Suburbia that uses a lot of the same mechanics, all of the same art for the same number of players, at the same time. That just isn't as good. Um, I'm really baffled by it, um, but. I mean, probably it's not that baffling. Like, probably the designers met and he, someone said, "I have a really cool idea for a spin-off of your game," and then suddenly you've got the Suburbia brand is bigger. But in practice, there's no need for both these games to exist. Just get Suburbia in the expansion, and have a great time. So, so it's not terribly disappointing. It's just not all that exciting. It's really not that exciting at all. It only bugs me because I'm fairly sure some people are going to accidentally buy Subdivision instead of Suburbia because uh, the box art also looks similar. Wow. So don't do that, everybody. Could happen. Mm. Yeah, that makes me think of whenever there's. I don't know if it still happens. It used to happen with anime series where you'd have an anime series and then you'd have a slightly different reboot of it <laughs> where it would have the same name and most of the same characters but be slightly different. And when I was 17 years old and getting into anime, that confused me so much. <laughs> and that's what you do. You accidentally buy part four of the wrong damn series. Wow. Should we talk about... And you paid £20 for two episodes because that's how anime works. Oh, God. Kind of back then you might have done, yeah. I think you still... I think On VHS. Anime DVD box sets are still mad. Uh, I was. I might start watching Attack on Titan. I wasn't too interested in the... Because the, it didn't get much critical reception, but then I actually saw some. Saw the trailer for it. It's got some really cool art design. Mm. Okay. Uh, I want to watch the one about the people who go into space from the 80s. I think it's Wings of Hominaise or something. And it's about just going into space the space race but imagined in Japan or something I think that sounds nice it does sound nice and I think it is nice and I think at no point do horrible things happen to people I could be right seems uncharacteristic for anime so so dungeons and so the the big meat of this podcast then probably we have now the big What's wrong with me? Two role-playing things we want to talk about. Yeah, so yes. first off, we have started... I have written about Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, the new edition. We've we had our first big session of it to all day, uh, five of us playing. And from character creation right through to hitting level three, which is where the characters start opening up. And it's really good. I've already written about this, but I'm kind of more interested in having a light chat about yeah. it. And, 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 you know, your own thoughts, because I wrote that big article about how it's accessible and, you know does a lot of systems really well and of course that descended into a massive comment war between 4th and 5th edition which uh, always happens well, if, no, you're gonna... if only funny it was that simple the, the funny thing was that it, it initially was when I said 5th edition is great a lot of people came in going 5th edition is bad 4th edition is better 5th edition makes all these criminal mistakes and I was like oh god really am I wrong and then immediately they started arguing with each other and saying well actually you say 4th edition is better 4th edition is in fact bad 2nd edition is it's like oh thank god they can't even agree with themselves I am probably allowed to have my own opinion and I'm not objectively wrong well this is it can we can we ever be objectively right about any of these different no D&D editions all I can do is state my opinion which is that 5th edition is fantastic we, there was even a thing um, I might have linked to it in my RPG diary I can't remember there was a thing a while ago maybe about a year ago where I kept seeing people buying 
just Dungeons and Dragons, just first edition stuff, either buying it or rebuying, reprinting yeah, it. Yeah, there was this. I became aware of this a few years ago too. The sort of retroness. Of and it, yeah, and first it's not was just selling again. It's not just retro appeal. It's people going, actually, I just want these really simple systems, and I don't care if they don't quite work. I'll just buy this older version of this because it'll be quicker and easier. And there were a couple of. I don't want to say knockoffs, but there are also I can't remember. Well, the no, name yeah, of there were spin-offs. I forget the name of them too. Yeah, but they have different names, but they're also based upon very first, basic first, first edition, edition systems. Yeah, I'm aware of this. Um, I in fact poked one of them, and the thing is, first edition isn't just simpler; it's really awkward. Like, and second edition is awkward as well. People forget it's not like going back to first edition is you know D and D light, yeah. which does in and of itself exist and have other names. First edition has bizarre stuff like. If you want to, say, push an old man off a cliff, you still have to make an attack roll. <laughs> and you're probably going to fail because you're level one and you can't hit anything ever. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it shows its roots, which is wargaming. And, uh, yeah. and that's not necessarily what people want from a role-playing game. But anyway, but... But. but. I, I liked fifth. Uh, and I liked fifth, I guess, because it reminded me in some ways of second, which is what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And well, it's a lot of story. It's a lot of colour. It's a lot of sort of problem solving that's a bit lateral, which is what I love. That's how I felt. I wasn't sure. About, I was in the beta and I was looking at a lot of the beta adventure stuff being emailed to me and I wasn't sure one way or the other. But I... The reason I liked it was because I felt it had an appropriate level of randomness with dice rolling, which I liked to some degree, mm-hmm. uh, an, an appropriate amount of role-playing skills, so your, your way to solve problems can be through diplomacy and through talking to people and finding traps and you know a whole host of spells that are not combat spells that allow you to manipulate the environment and play around with things. Because the, the more, I think, the more you make it kind of like a sandbox that players can play around with, they'll do, the more it becomes a game where they'll do interesting stuff and they'll surprise the GM and the GM will have more fun because the GM isn't just taking through sort of beats after beats where they fight people or they do certain things. The GM has to be on their toes a little bit more and has to react to a living world that includes living players. Yes. Um, I had good fun with it. I am interested to play more. I liked making my character, I'll be interested to see how the prestige classes go. Ah, uh, yeah, so this is where you all just hit level three at the end of the session, which was a, which we couldn't have timed better, because level three is where everybody kind of picks their subclass. Yeah, it's where you become a bit more of, or even more of an individual. Mm, so you're not just, a thief will suddenly become an arcane trickster in a kind of Loki fashion, or they'll become an assassin, or they'll become a burglar. And uh, your wizard, I think, can make the choice between their different school of magic. Wizard. Is that good? I forget. I think so, and I think I already scribbled down some notes of the kind of stuff I want to do. But it felt like... It felt good, and I liked it, and it felt like the kind of D&D I enjoyed growing up. And it felt a bit more fantastic because of that, and exciting. It felt flexible to me, you know? Yeah. Like, anything yeah. anyone wanted to do at any moment, whether that was... If people wanted to sink their teeth into the combat system and work out mathematically the most efficient thing to do, they could do that. If people wanted to have the dice and skill checks to charm a uh, sort of in woman and have fun doing that, explore in that. Woman. I don't know, <laughs> but those systems exist, and I think that's selling it short. Those systems are loved by the designers. Nothing is an afterthought. It's uh, and yeah, like you say, in combat, it's just endlessly surprising. There's always odd things people can do. Most of which is down, is down, frankly, to the design of the dungeons in the adventures we've been playing, the preset ah. adventures. If you look at any room on that, 
it'll give you some flavour text and it'll say there are some orcs and this treasure in this room and then it'll say this room has a bell the bell is connected to this and and it, dungeons are like ecosystems yeah which I think I mean one of the first things that happened in our game was you guys in fact both of the dungeons you took the shortest possible route to the boss and then either killed the boss or made them run away and because you're, you were dealing with like quite bestial animals in both cases that just triggered a mass retreat which then you what did you, you crawl well, yeah, well with the, the main guy that we were after just ran off because we were we were crap <laughs> essentially when we ran into his lab and we found all this stuff we went oh this is interesting and he just left while we were yeah well he he pretty much heard you all just explode like a SWAT team into his laboratory and he went ah oh, and and then you, I very explicitly told you, okay, so you'll spend a couple of minutes searching the room, and you all went, yes. Yeah, what's in here? And then you went rummage, into the next rummage. room, and there was just like an open back door, and you're like, oh, okay. In hilarious comedy fashion. Yeah. It was... Uh, but I was thinking about the time you killed all the goblins by triggering a retreat, then catching them all with a fireball or whatever it was. That, that was the kind of stuff I was doing when I was 18 years old. <laughs> um... And the thing is, I would do that with my old GM, and my GM would sort of nod sagely and go, yeah, you can do that, that's part of the adventure, but that's not everything. And it felt like, like you say, whether you want to uh, be the, the min-maxing combat person or whether you want to be someone who approaches things more laterally, it feels like a system where you can play around a bit more and you can be a talky character or you can be a sneaky character. Mm-hmm. I've, I, saw- I didn't feel like that way with fourth. No. It felt like you are sneaking because you're going to stab something. <laughs> It's yeah. not like you are, you are going to stealth this level and get out and no one will know that you're there. No, and even in the... Like, again, one of the first rooms in the sort of bandit hideout that you guys encountered, like, if you come from a different angle, um, one of the first things you can go into is a barracks. And it's really important that the adventure description says, on the wall in the barracks are a load of red cloaks that the bandits all wear. That's all it says, but obviously an inventive group can go, ah, and then... Probably, if you're smart and you want to tweak it that way, you can get through the whole dungeon without just pretending to be bandits. And like suddenly, the everybody's playing this kind of heist game. If that's what you want to do, I haven't done that for a while. I haven't again done that till second edition, where me and a bunch of guys burst into some guy's quarters and put on all his armor to dress up as uh, as him, yeah. and then hilariously walked through the castle and just got beaten up because everyone. <laughs> Everyone saw, what, three or four copies of their general walking around together and thought, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's that sort of level of, of logic. It, but I haven't played stuff like that for a while. The only downside for me with 5th edition is it's made... Just before 5th edition, we were trying and playing the new Star Wars role-playing game. Yes. Uh, Edge of Empire, the Edge of Empire book from Fantasy Flight. We've still got a little bit more to play. We do, and we're probably going to, uh, but... It has really opened my eyes as to quite how inelegant the Star Wars role-playing game is because it's so glossy and the, the custom dice are so nice and the adventures are so lovingly crafted that it essentially created a smokescreen where I didn't notice how confused and how stymied I was being by the systems. Mm. Like Fundamentally, character creation in the Star Wars role-playing game and the talent trees you've got look great and they're awful, I think. Like I'm, The more I'm thinking about this, like because you can put points in stats or skills, like in D&D. Yeah. You also, every class has a talent tree, like an enormous video game-like tree where you can get skills that give you, uh, you know, if you're in a spaceship that's being shot at, you have plus one to driving or whatever, little bonuses that you can pay for for cheap. And it's so awkward because you create a character and they go, you've got 200 points, how do you want to spend them? And then 
you can buy new trees, you can advance down one tree, you can get skills, you can get stats, and you don't even know what your character wants to be. And it's the polar opposite of fifth edition. It doesn't feel so intuitive to me. And I'm still not sure also how I feel about running it and sort of the amount of improvisation required from the different die, die results. Yes, because the die system, you roll the dice and it's the same as there was in their Warhammer roll reboot. And frankly, this is all because they want to sell custom dice along with their role-playing games. Either because it's it appeals players... It, it appeals and then players want to play the main game or because they can make money from selling dice. I'm not sure, but custom dice is something that a lot of RPG publishers are pushing for right now. But it's like reading tea leaves. It's meant to be cool because you roll the result and it says, ah, you've succeeded, but something awful has happened as a result. Yeah. You failed, but you've been lucky or you failed and it's been an awful failure. So there's more flexibility than just a flat number, arguably, but it means that then everybody looks at the GM and goes... So I what just shot at this guy and yeah. I missed, but something grey happened. And, and that could be happening five times a round in combat if you have five players and they all have to do five interesting <laughs> things every combat. I would be... I would very quickly get tired. And I guess at least with D&D... D&D 5th, you get a D20 and you roll it. And there's... I've got to say probably... I don't know, quite quickly, that there is still, I think, a problem with that. When we were playing with Lee, Lee was saying it's a game where you think you're going to be good at something and you roll a die and it just says, no, you're not. Oh, in Dungeons of the Dragons? Yeah, in, in D&D 5th, or in most D&D. And I still wonder about the viability of a D20, because it's a die with an enormous range. It's got a huge range, 20 different numbers, but most of the time it's just telling you whether you have passed or failed. And if you fail, then your character... If you put a lot of emotional investment into your character being good at one thing. Yeah. I think for me that's always been a job that I take seriously as a GM where if I've got a character who I know is, for example, say in our Deadlands campaign, if someone is an ex-sheriff and this legendary shot with a rifle and the first roll he makes with the, you know, the thing he shoots, for me as a GM, then I, that that's on me to say, oh, well, the sun was in your eyes and the guy got lucky. You know, you're still a badass. It's that's very good. important I like to that express idea. that in the description. Um, but yeah, it's just tricky. Um... And, yeah, it's... I don't know. I guess it, the, we'll play maybe a little more Star Wars just because we've got those characters now and uh, we've got the dice in the books. But, yeah, it, it's it's been frustrating me the more I think about it. Oh, that reminds me, though. There is... A, as far mm -hmm. as... Um, you're talking about the D20 and results go. Yeah. So there is... Uh, Tying into our conversation with D&D, &D, I saw Team Covenant, our friends at Team Covenant, did a, they did their very first role-playing game review of something they've been playing recently, which looks awesome, frankly. It's got kickstarted. It's just come out recently. It's called Torchbearer. And this is kind of... Imagine Hobo D&D &D is, <laughs> is the incredibly quick pitch. It's a world where... It's a much more plausible strain of D&D &D where, oh yeah, there are crypts and there are caves where goblins live and they, they stockpile gold, but holy shit, you don't go in there. It, it very much presents you. You can be heroes, you can become heroes eventually, but you're just people so down on their luck. They will go to where the ghosts are to steal a necklace. Um, and it uses a lot of... this. Like, one of the examples of the systems is to kind of how much grit it conjures up. There's, I, there's no D20s, there are D6s, and, mm. but more importantly, in fights... So two systems I'll talk about very quickly that kind of, for anyone at home thinking, well, how do you do it other than a D20? And um, so or how do you do it instead of just these stark numbers? And so two systems to talk about, I'll quickly talk about. The first of which is in combat, you decide what you're trying to do. So it's not just roll and hit. It's you decide, are you trying to kill this thing? Are you trying to drive it off? Are you trying to protect yourself? Which are, of course, all radically different fighting stuff. Yeah. If a spider's coming at me, I'm not just trying to hit it. I'm, am I running away? Am I desperately using my sword to... What am I and that's I'm, interesting. Yes, and so a lot of the time in Torchbearer, players will not try and kill something. They will just try and wound it or scare it. 
Because why did you don't need the orc to die? You need the orc to fuck off and let you go past, you know. And uh, and so these are all different results you take, but it means that players can reliably get results that they need. Because if, for example, I'm not very good with my sword, I can just protect myself in a fight and be yeah. quite good at that. Versus if, for example, in D&D, your wizard ran out of spells and tried to use his quarter staff and you were just neither hitting, and we were all joking about how you were just Star Wars kid running in and spinning your quarter staff and not hitting anything. Um, the other system in Torchbearer that I was told about that I really like is rather than having hit points, you can have statuses. Um, and statuses are similar, but I think it's something like if you ever have four statuses, you are dead. Or five statuses, you are dead. And an example of a status is, okay, you can walk to this graveyard in one day, but it's up a mountain, and so you're going to be exhausted. So all the characters might arrive with the exhausted status, which is yeah. So essentially you, and then maybe you're in a fight and you're, you know, you get cut. And so you have, you're bleeding. So now you're exhausted and bleeding. Ah. And so, but you need to collect essentially five different statuses. And after your you know, fourth, you know, you know you're very close to death because you're exhausted, bleeding, you've got a head injury. And, and of course, anyone with that is going to be close to death, but it's only when you get your fifth, whatever it is. So even if just walking home... That's like, interesting. Yes. And so it, it means you don't take that, oh, he hits you for six hit points of damage. It enables players... To have a degree of control and also a lack of control, and in a in a thing that's incredible. it's a sensible kind of abstraction. It's yes, a, yeah, it it makes sense, and it. I mean, the whole point of hit points, to some degree, is they're supposed to represent you being worn down by fatigue rather than just, you know, stabbed fifty times, <laughs> which is ridiculous, or hit by a whole bunch of arrows like Sean Bean or something. Yeah, uh, I. I don't know. I really like the sound of that. I think it's it's nice, and it's a lot of it's it, evocative too. It's tremendously. That's the word that I would say is the most exciting. I am exhausted and bleeding, and I can't see. <laughs> uh, you know, of oh, course, I'm going about to. That's die. the other mechanic that it talks about. Of course, the name comes from the fact that light is one of the most important mechanics in the game, and how you have light and manage light, because. In D&D, something that is often glossed over is the fact that you're often in caves and you can't see because everyone's elves or whatever. But um, who's carrying the torch? And how far away can you get from them? Because if you have a torch, there's one of your hands just taken up. Yeah. And, uh, and generally running out of light and managing light is tremendously important, which is, again, a, it, it's successful as a puzzle and a mechanic. And all of that is simultaneously evocative, which is exactly the kind of shorthand that I like in an RPG system and that Star Wars, the RPG from Fantasy Flight, does not have. Mm. Star Wars, the RPG, has a crap ton of rules and numbers and figures. And at, at the end of the result, what do you have? You have the game still looking at the GM and saying, doing something cool. Whereas Torchbearer, you have a bad GM, but still the systems to do with managing light and being tired allow make the GM's job easier. That's interesting. And I like that. And it's also just often overlooked in... I think we live in a very well-lit culture in Western <laughs> civilization, and we forget that actually, and having been out in forests in the dark or having been, you know, in a dark cave, when you have a torch, actually, it's a pretty rubbish thing. You can... You can it's not a real torch. I'm talking an old, like, burning brazier yeah, thing. Because it's an, it's an intense light source that's very close to your eyes. Yeah. So your actual... You know, distance that you can see is going. It's not fantastic, and it doesn't reach as far as you think. Mm. I've been in a in a field in the dark as a teenager with a proper old-fashioned burning torch, just going. Oh, I can't see anything. <laughs> Every, everybody can see me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Wow, how incredibly creepy. 
Dog Eat Dog okay uh, is a game that we played that was a role playing game I think we're going to play this again on this week and I'm going to see if Pip and Brendan want to write something about it because we have finally played this game we've recorded it and uh, very soon we'll be putting it online for our donors of the last oh yes as we said we would yes and it was interesting and I think um I was so uh, sort of optimistic and filled with optimism when, which are two different things apparently. Okay. Um, <laughs> when we started covering indie RPGs on Shut Up and Sit Down, because I would yeah. hear about them and I would learn, and I was so impressed. And there are a lot of interesting things happening. Yes, and but now I've you know played games of Shooting the Moon, which haven't landed, so to speak. I've played games of Fiasco, which haven't taken off. Games that we've recommended, but just in slightly different groups, in different contexts, at different times, with different energy levels. Interesting. Don't because I've always had fun with Fiasco. I did until I played it with people who weren't my friends. I also had the time with Fiasco where one of the characters we invented was racist and it actually just upset someone at the table. Oh, um, no. We had to stop, um, which was fine. And it, but it was just an example of how. Yeah. Because if that person isn't having a good time, of course you stop. Yeah. Um, but Doggy Dog again, our first game with it. I was so excited to play it, and actually, it was tricky to. Uh, it was tough. Do you so, think that was partly because you ended up in the position of being the colonizer, though, well, which must you, be a hard position? Do you want to explain the game quickly for people at home who haven't heard of Doggy Dog? I will, be, I will do my best. Uh, Doggy Dog is a game where everyone around the table, first of all, before the game even begins, works out who they think the richest player is, and then that richest player has to be different to everyone else mm-hmm. by being a colonizer who arrives in a place that all the other players live in together. Yep. Uh, and then a, there are a variety of rules associated with this place that the group comes up with, which can be things like the uh, the people who live in this place uh, behave in this way, they have this particular ecosystem, or they look this way, or they mm-hmm. have these certain traditions. Uh, and then there might be certain rules around the colonizer, and one of those is always that they are superior. Yep. And that's it's not really given a context, is it? It's just described as they are superior. No, like a lot of the um, the extreme end of indie role playing games, the booklet for this game can't be much more than thirty pages, and there's mm. a lot of players having to puzzle their way through. Which gets easier, I think, the more familiar you are with indie role playing games. But even us, who role played quite a lot, we it was, struggled. Mm, yes, and uh, I think immediately we and then yes, sorry to continue, no, go on to continue. What happens next is you play out a series of scenes. And at the end of every scene, another role is established for the colony. So, for example, if the first scene sees the colonists trying to fight off... Sorry, the colonists fighting with the natives and then obviously winning, um, the, the rule is established that the natives should not fight the colonists. And uh, so any scene where the natives obey all the rules that have been set up so fast, and essentially being subser- subservient, uh, the colonizer must give them coins, tokens, really. Um, but any time they break a rule, they give a token to the colonizer. And if a native ever a native player ever runs out of coins, then they essentially run amok and they become a rebel and then die in the story. But they do get to narrate their own death. Uh, but otherwise, the colonizer will just continue narrating any conflict whatsoever and essentially being, in a lot of ways, God. Um, but if he ever runs out of tokens because everybody's playing by the rules, then the colonizers do leave. They get what they need in some respect and leave. And so there's a kind of horrible tug of war where players... Yeah. We kind of piece it together by the end. Players are essential. The, the native players, I think, are meant to be under the thumb of the colonizer and constantly be given unpleasant decisions, trying to do A, but in fact having to do B, having to decide whether that's okay, and then gently being pushed more and more towards either death or acceptance, neither of which are pleasant, because 
you're being colonized. You don't have yeah. a choice in this. It's essentially a legal or illegal. And be, being that player, you're in a position where you have to. It feels like you're treading very carefully, and you're constantly trying to compromise. Mm-hmm. And you're constant. You think, right? I can't do these things. I can't do things. What is the way that I can compensate, or what can I actually achieve? Because there's so much I can't achieve. <laughs> so I need to worm my way around rules or use them to my advantage without getting in trouble. It's yes. a bit like. It's almost a bit like sort of trying not to break rules at school, but bunking yeah. off. And but it, it's you're not at school. Someone's just turned up and made a bunch of rules for you, mm-hmm. and you were doing fine before. Yeah, it, and it, I, the thing we should talk about the most is actually we really struggled with this because we decided that our colony would be in space, in sort of distant, abstract yeah. future between an aquatic people, and then the big smoking, heavy lizard merchant things that arrived. And that was all the context we were given because we were play- we weren't playing in a historical context, which the game recommends loosely as the default. Yeah. So w- we just ended up kind of talking and having hostile negotiations, really. And it was only uh, towards the end of our session that we kind of realised that I was going to have to be meaner, and then we ran out of time, and Brendan and Pip had to go home, which was frustrating. But I think no less valid a playthrough just because our, yeah. we, we struggled to make the game work well that if that was our first experience that was our first experience exactly. you know that was that was how we were introduced to it and I think it is I think it's almost certainly supposed to be something that is challenging players and some people will not be able to pick it up and some people will be put off after the first game because of the concept or because of the difficulty or because of how awkward it will make them feel mm-hmm. with each other. And it's trying to do that. It's deliberately trying to do that. And I think this is what I mean. Yes, it, we should say that this is a game that's very much designed to make players think about these issues or, and, or explore issues in a way that is enjoyable but thought-provoking. Um, but it is definitely making me aware that the indie RPGs that are so exciting pull in a lot of different directions with regards to what players are meant to get out of the game and what they're meant to put into the game and by which I mean Hmm. Fiasco is a game that's meant to be funny so the players have to have some vague skill at being funny or at you best. need a, I think you need an amount of improvisation and bouncing off each other right. and maybe that's why I've always had fun because whenever we've played it we've played it in groups of people who are a bit silly and quite creative yep uh, whereas Doggy Dog very much wants players to think about their character and enjoy character studies really and to yeah. enjoy exploring the ethical implications of, of the game and you'd probably want to play with people you feel quite safe and comfortable with too yeah I just in general you know coming to it especially as a board gaming website it makes me realise just how inaccessible well no, no inaccessible isn't the word you just all need to be on the same level yeah. you, know, you need to be so like minded in a way that isn't the case with any board game we've ever reviewed It's. I would say so yeah I think that's a pretty fair evaluation so yeah we're going to play Doggy Dog again and, and we'll, we'll write something about it for you guys but, uh, but yeah a very interesting one shall we close by I'll pick out a couple of uh, a couple of interesting questions uh, okay so you just need to talk into the camera while I do how this how many questions I don't know a couple we've, we've talked for a long time have we well, we could have we can have three questions. Just keep talking, keep talking, babe. Well, because you don't want it to go silent. Yeah. You think it would be awkward. Yeah, we can cut this out. Like we cut out the bit about the haunted photographs um, and the first ever death on the show, which is not your fault. It's not your fault. Okay. Okay, this is an interesting <laughs> one. Uh, parallel lives, topical says. Oh. Uh, parallel at parallel chat says. Um, given the month. 
Spooky October. Have you ever been actively scared during a role-playing game? Oh. That's a good one. I, I have. I want to hear if you have a story, or shall I? I, um... I can launch into mine if you need to think. No, you go. Okay. Yeah, probably at least once or twice, maybe more. Um, the, the, the moment I remember, I was about 19 or 20, and it was when we started playing Ravenloft. And this is back second edition D&D, so this, this is more a role-playing game than a board game. Um, but I didn't know very much about Ravenloft, and I'd never played it very much. I played it briefly as a young teenager and died. And it was a more Call of Cthulhu-y kind of thing when I played it when I was younger, where the characters just die. Uh -huh. Whereas the way my GM ran, it was more like characters are largely powerless, and the only way to achieve things is very indirectly. Um, you know, you can't fight a lot of the monsters, but you can get around them, or you can do stuff behind their backs without them realizing. Uh, and once or twice it was particularly atmospheric and I just remember an opening session or a second session or something where we're all just very basic, very rubbish characters and we're in a forest. And uh, I think our transport had failed and we had to rest in the forest for the night before we could carry on. Okay. And there were just noises. <laughs> and, I, and I said something like, like my, GM said, you, my GM said, you hear an incredible howl. And I said, what is it? And he goes, I don't know. Do you want to go and look? <laughs> and then it just occurred to me that there were three of us just in the woods in the middle of nowhere with nothing except noises. <laughs> and it worked really well. And the whole, generally, the whole Ravenloft campaign was a good exercise in how you run a campaign with players and you don't make them feel too powerful, but you make them feel like they're still intelligent and they're still resourceful, but they have to think about what they do. Don't know if I've had it from a board game. Uh, no, I'm not sure if I've had it from a board game either. For me, I've got my good story now. Um, when I was role-playing in Kieran Gillen's campaign, Kieran Gillen now writes a uh, comics course, now writing Wicked and Divine. Was this the uh, Warhammer Fantasy? <clears throat> yes, it was Warhammer Fantasy. I didn't write the rule system, but he's a great GM. Um, and uh, he had one really interesting session, which was at the kind of climax of the campaign, we were part of an army that was opening a pass that had been essentially overgrown by forests and oh, uh, it was okay. a pass that had been reopened between two cities and it was obviously overwhelmed with the horrible creatures um, but at one but as the army forged forward essentially clearing out camps of monsters and opening the road forts were set up along the road to make sure the road didn't wasn't retaken and uh, we were told okay just go and stay in this fort just look after this fort and we were just like a dwarf and a rogue and a, my character was just a warrior and we were really good because we'd been playing for ages and we'd leveled up and whatnot. But we didn't know. We were just adventurers. And so we arrived and there were something like 200 men, all from different regions of, of essentially the old world, which is in the Warhammer universe, kind of Europe. Um, and they all kind of had different ways about them. Like there were these crossbowmen who smoked a lot of pipe weed and there were these great swords who were very militaristic and they, they cleaned their armor all the time. And, but all of them were looking at us like expecting us to be commanders and Kieran did a really great job clearly the focus of the adventure was not was testing to see if we were incompetent or not <laughs> and we had no idea what we were doing it's like run this fort for three days and very quickly it became apparent that we were making mistakes and when, ah. and when we had to command 200 men because you know uh, sort of beastmen were showing up outside any mistake we made would obviously lead to deaths of these 200 men and they would start looking at us and realising we were incompetent and slowly we realised that we were losing grip on command and we would see oh, them talking to each other 
And the awful thing is obviously that if we did lose command, that would be awful because then probably more people would die if we were attacked because there wouldn't be a functioning command yeah. structure. So it That's interesting. It, wasn't, it was scary in a horror sense in that, for example, some people were taken prisoner and then they were set up just outside the fort and like were skinned just uh, from the walls where we could see them and hear their cries and all that stuff. But far more was just the horror of like Kieran looking at us and saying, the great sword comes to you, he's got this problem. These other people have told them this and whatever. What do you say? The horror and of responsibility. Yes, the horror of responsibility. That's he, really good. And he would say like, as this important question is asked of one of our characters, he would say, 200 men in the camp fall silent and turn to look at you to see what your response is. And that's great because the layer of remove from me being looked at by the GM and saying, what's your answer? And my character being looked at by the man saying, what's your answer? Like there was, it was so similar that mm. it absolutely puts you in the shoes of your character. It was great. It was really, it was so awful and very, very scary. Kieran, I, Kieran should do a Warhammer comic again. I remember like 10 years ago, one of his first ever comics he showed to me and it was a Warhammer comic. I should do some more. He'd do, he rolls sorry, Uber now, which is about super soldiers uh, in World War II. It's very good as well and comes uh, tremendously recommended. We should have got him to give us some money before this podcast. <laughs> uh, finally. We're doing uh, all this wrong. Another spooky October question. Didn't get any money from Banji either. Uh, F uh, no, they, no, they have no word from Banji. Efka Bladukas, at no pun included, asks, have you wondered about ethical treatment of workers in board game manufacturing? Has anyone investigated production in China? No, but that's a really good point. It's a very good point. And the only thing that I know about sort of like Chinese working conditions is that it's almost impossible to get in there. Like, I am aware that most, or not most, but there is the, the Chinese company, the manufacturing company, that manufactures a lot of board game publishers' work. Um, is all manufactured in on the same site. You know, X-Wing yeah. is being manufactured right next to, you know, God knows what, like... Uh, I'm trying to think of a game that isn't made in Germany. But, you know, X-Wing is being manufactured next to Zombie 15, for example, King of New York, all this stuff. And these are, like, trade secrets. And this is stuff that won't be out for nine months. And so there's an enormous quantity of secrecy, even within the high level, just two board games. Blimey. And that's before we get into the treatment of workers. Um, I do know that a lot of board game publishers, including Fantasy Flight, have investigated uh, treatment of workers, um, but I don't know much about it beyond that. I also know that if you take games with pre-painted miniatures, depending on where it comes in the print run, the miniatures will be painted better or worse because the people who arrive in the factory tend to do a bad job initially, and then after working for three months, they do amazing work. Blimey. Um, that is the full extent. Those are like the three facts I know about Chinese board game manufacturing. I didn't know any of that. That is all news to me. Hmm. Wow. Uh, but you're, uh, I know that, yeah, access for anything kind of manufactured in China is difficult to find out about. Mm. I think this is a somewhat useless answer, but I think uh, the, if you are concerned about this, the best thing to do is to write to your board game publisher or post on their official forums and ask, because hopefully they would at least have a policy on this. Hopefully it's something they've been asked before or talked about. I think that makes have, sense. They would have something relatively quickly that they could tell you. Um, it's not something that we've investigated mostly because our background isn't in investigative journalism. We're a you know criticism and humor site. Um, but I don't want to shirk responsibility. I do think it's yeah. an important issue, and maybe... If we get the chance in future when talking to board game publishers, we can we can ask them. Yeah, and if you know anything, if you happen to know any answers to that question, let us know. That's a good spooky Halloween question with the spooky chime. No, I'm not going to say. That. <laughs> uh, phew, that was a long podcast with some scary stuff. Was it? Was it? I think so. I think it was like an hour and a bit. Was it? 
Oh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to keep you going for that long. I think I, I, tan I tangented too much. No, that was great. Thank you. Do you want one of the cookies that I brought around? Oh, I forgot. I was going to eat one of the cookies. You can have one. Okay. They're from Sainsbury's. They're a bit dry. They, they're, they're big. And if Lee wants to have one, she can obviously also have a cookie. While I eat this, why don't you say goodbye to everybody? Goodbye to everybody. Oh. Um, That's disgusting. Um, why did you come, why did you come nearer to me to eat it? <laughs> <laughs> Bye everyone. Goodbye everyone.